in my prayer, I said the words, your honor. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but it came out of my mouth before I knew what happened. Um, in my work in the class, in the courtroom, not classroom, that's a previous life. In my work in the courtroom, we treat our judges as gods with a small g, and that's good. I mean that respectfully. I think our judges do a great job in this state, and uh, they have the authority to make decisions, and we refer to them as your honor. Um, I've never referred to the Lord that way. I don't think it's necessarily inaccurate, but if it happens on a regular basis, my kids will start looking for assisted living for me, so... <laughs> um, so I got to watch that. Happy Fourth of July. We, uh, we are a country who was formed on the basis of Pilgrim Rebellion, and we're thankful they did. And we as a country today are blessed by a whole series of traditions and patterns that I think God has honored. Um, we're in trouble as a, as a country today. We're in worse trouble than we've been in previous past. And so uh, praying for those who are in authority over us, and I say that determined that that's my obligation to do, uh, is an appropriate thing on even the July 4th and the days after. I told you that uh, we try to coordinate our music in relation to the themes of the message. And in the last two weeks uh, with the message on wealth and money, not only do I recognize that I'm going to offend pretty much everybody in this body today, and those of you who are listening online, but I told you it doesn't bother me as long as I apply and offend myself as well. So last week, in trying to come up with a song, summarily rejected, uh, I suggested the Beatles song, Yesterday, Yesterday All My Troubles Were So Far Away, Now I Know They're Here to Stay, as a theme for money. That was rejected. So I've got another, I, I'm not easily deterred. So I have another song suggestion for today that follows the theme of money. And I thought, we need to go back to the basics of kindergarten, where we learned most of what we needed to know. And I think this song might fit with the message. Tell me if you think it does. Isn't that kind of the way money feels to us? There's a hole in our bucket. I, I now have lost any opportunity to make any future suggestions to the music team. I, underst I understand that. Okay, today we're going to speak to the issue of wealth and money and debt and generosity and investment. So we've got a lot to talk about in a relatively brief amount of time, and we'll follow with communion this morning. The book of James, we are now into our swan song on the book of James. We're at about year four, and we're going from here to the book of Matthew. And today we are in chapter five, so if you'll open your Bibles after you hold them up so that I can see them. Look at that. There is more today. I'm having an influence, I think. Good. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, I, I've given you various 
outlines the book of James, one of which I've talked to you about, one which I haven't. The one I've talked to you about in the book of James, this is a book written, it's the first of our New Testament books, written by the half-brother of Jesus, beginning to be circulated as quickly as a year after his crucifixion, which would have been 34 AD, to the churches scattered in the provinces. The majority of them were slaves, and they were confused at times and misbehaving at times, and so this epistle, which was both by oral tradition and written tradition circulated through the churches, was to get things as straight as possible for this early church before the next of the epistles was written, 15 years later, the book of Galatians. So in James, I said, I've said to you before that the outline of the book of James is chapter 1, verse 19 where I'm reading, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, that covers chapter 1 and 2, slow to speak, that covers chapter 3, and slow to become angry, that's chapter 4 and 5. That's the outline I've given you before. Here's a new one. It's also good. James is broken up into seven questions, and it's okay to write in your Bible. I do. The seven questions of the book of James are, and I'm going to fly, so listen carefully. The first question in James is chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring. Question number one. Question number two is in chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone comes, claims to have faith, but has no works? That's the second question in James. Third question in James, chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the third of the seven questions in the book. The fourth question in the book, chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And he addresses that. The fifth question, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? So in a polemic sort of way... There was during the time of Luther, I've got to get through this. There was during the time of Luther a patron that followed him named Bozo. I think he's kind of aptly named. But Bozo in the 12th century would ask Luther questions, set him up so that Luther could teach. Kind of what we get here. We're getting these questions that set us up so that James can teach us. All right, where are we at? Uh, question number where five. Five, you adulterous people, chapter 4, verse 4. Chap question 6, chapter 4, verse 13. You who say today when tomorrow we'll go to this and that city, spend a year here, carry on business. Why? Do you not know that what will, you don't know what will happen tomorrow? That's the fifth question, excuse me, the sixth question in the book. And we dealt with that last week. The seventh question is in chapter 5 and verse 13. Is any among you in trouble? we got three weeks left in the book of James today for dealing with the first part of chapter 5. Next week, which we deal with patience and suffering, and the book will finish off in kind of an extravaganza talking about Christians who sin and struggle and how we can come alongside. Kind of an interesting close to this remarkable book. Our section that we're in right now talks about patience and tolerance. And first of all, a 
expectations in relation to God's work in our life. Don't say, I'm going to go here for a year and make a profit. Say, if the Lord wills. None of us are here this morning having instructed our hearts to beat, right? We're here by the gift of God. And today, in the rest of chapter 5, we're going to talk about patience and wisdom in relation to others. All right, chapter 5 and verse 1. Now listen. What does that say to you? Now listen. It's the prophet James. He's saying, stop it. Hold on. You see that last week in chapter 4, verse 13? Now listen. Some of your versions say, come now. That's James saying, pay attention, pay attention. This is really important stuff. The next thing you need to know is that the chapters and verses in your Bible were not in the original. Well, what's the point, John? Um, the point is, at times, it helps you understand the text by reading through without letting your brain get caught by a chapter division or by a verse division. And actually, such is the case today, because in chapter 5, verse 1, James plows right ahead from chapter 4, talking about making decisions based on if the God wills. And chapter 5, verse 1, I'm reading. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Right. What world are you in, John? You're telling me that if I'm rich, I'm to weep and wail not in this lifetime. That's what I work for. That's what this America is set up for, for me to get what I need, to work and financially prosper. Anytime you see a phrase repeating itself in the Bible, pay special attention. Chapter 4, verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Chapter 5, verse 1, you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. What does this say? This is James the prophet saying, hold on, buckle up. If you're heading to wealth, you're heading onto dangerous ground. Right, John, there's, there's, give me some of that. That'll be just fine. No. <laughs> it says, the wise Christian as their net worth increases, hold on to this, gets on increasingly precarious ice. There's opportunity, we'll talk about that today, but James says, you think you've arrived with wealth? It's just the opposite, you're in trouble. And for the majority here, not everybody here, but for the majority here, we have discretionary money. We have money we don't need on a monthly basis and we have to decide what to do with it. We'll talk about that today. Reading on, verse two. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and your flesh like fire. Now there is a prophetic, pa a prophetic pattern that basically says a prophet will look at judgment that's coming in the future and create a faith accompli today. He'll talk about things that are coming in the future, and he'll say, act as if it's happening today. Your 
corrosion will testify against you. The Greek word for that is ios. And corrosion is a good translation. Another translation is poison. Your poison will testify against you and your flesh. Remember what we said about the Greek language. Don't get overly impressed by it. If it changes the interpretation in your English text, it's wrong. All the Greek does is it takes your black and white TV and turns it into a color. It kind of gives you a little more definition. But this says what you're heading to with wealth is something that will poison you. It'll burn you up. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your field are crying out against you. You get the picture of a wealthy Christian in this early church who's kind of sitting on his plantation porch, so to speak. He's fat. He's indulgent. He's selfish. And he abuses those who work for him. Speaking as an employer who currently has 20 to 25 employees in three companies, I watch that pretty carefully. And some of those employees <coughs> are listening to this message today, so I suspect I'm going to ask for a raise after the message <laughs> is over. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Whoa. Talk about a resume for an employer. We'll talk about, if you're an employer, how to handle that at the end of the message today. But this is really ugly stuff. James chapter 1 says, A rich man is like a flower who fades. Remember that? James chapter 2, verse 6 says, The rich people have... Uh, let me use James's words. The rich people have um, insulted those. It was not the rich who have exploited you. That's the word I was trying to remember. There were rich people in this church who had taken advantage of the poor people in that church. I'm sure there were employers who employed the slaves in that church. And James... Hits him right between the eyes. Chapter 4. The wealth of this congregation is you ask and you don't have because you ask with wrong motives so you can spend it on yourself. So we're reeling a little bit on the subject of wealth and riches by the time we get to chapter 5 and James nails us. Proverbs 22.7 says... The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. We always focus on the last part of that verse, the borrower is the slave of the lender. First part of the verse is just as true, the rich rule over the poor. So both in the Old Testament and the New, there's nothing that commends wealth in and of itself as an end product to life. In fact, we learned last week that in Luke 12 with the rich fool who, when <laughs> Jesus answered the question, tell my family to share their inheritance with me, 
he went into a discussion of the rich fool who had a good crop and said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I'm going to take it easy, drink and be merry. I'm going to take, uh, take my leisure. And Jesus said, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. And we learned last week that that rich fool was making three mistakes. First mistake was he mistook time for eternity. We're all here for a brief period of time. And then we flash into eternity. And to those of us that have believed in and holding on to Jesus, we go to be with him forever. So that fool said, time is where it's at. And Jesus said, no, eternity is where it's at. The second thing that fool made a mistake on was he mistook his body for his soul. The most critical thing in life is not just this, but what's going on inside, where our soul is, in that God-shaped vacuum that we all have and that is filled with the salvation that comes through Jesus. The third mistake the fool makes is he mistakes what is God's for what is his. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, you need to be rich toward God. We established last week that stewardship for us is four things. Here's a test. You get to move to the front row with Cherie if you get all four of these right. What are the four things of stewardship that we have? Time is one. Money is another. Possessions is a third. And relationships. Bruce, you get to come right down here and sit by Sherry. And note that that was Bruce that got those answers, not Barbara. She's always the star, but that was Bruce. That, that, that. Good job, Bruce. Time, money, possessions, and relationships. Those are the four things that are given to us temporarily by God that we're to handle in a way that honors him and that makes us rich toward God. Winston Churchill said, he loved these kind of sayings, where there is a will, I want to be in it. <laughs> well, we understand what Winston meant by that. It's something that attaches itself to all of us. But in James 5, how can I say this? We kind of are exposed. We're kind of ripped open in terms of that natural bent to be wealthy. And we all have decisions to make about how to order the things that God has left us with. Now to um, finish off the subject, we go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. So turn to 1 Timothy 6. Timothy wrote, also on the subject of money, and with it, we want to establish two things as per your outline. The first is how to hope in God more than in money. And the second is how to be wealthy and rich in things that count for eternity. 1 Timothy 6 starts, and I'm going to read, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, if we have food and, 
covering, we shall be content with that. With that, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into any many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I've, had, I've heard a myriad of ser- sermons that say, it's not money, but it's the love of money that's wrong. I kind of get tired of that, frankly, because there's something about money that's the attraction. Yeah, it's the root of money. I mean, I could put a dollar bill on the table here, and it's not evil in and of itself. But that attraction of money is a thing that's caused Christians to wander from the faith. And Timothy says, watch out because you're on dangerous ground. And then before we catch our breath, we go down in Timothy to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. And that's really the, can I say it, the the mental or psychological flip that happens as you get money. We start putting our hope in that instead of in God. I have here a lottery ticket. See if I can illustrate this. Oregon's Megabucks. This is my shot for five bucks to get $4.8 million. Now, I'm here to tell you that a lot of things in life are not moral issues, black and white, right and wrong. They're wisdom issues. I've bought lottery tickets before. I, don't, I haven't bought them now in a few years because I just don't think about it, but I wanted to illustrate today, so I went over and bought another lottery ticket. But I have in the past, when I've done this, said, okay, if I win this, what am I going to do with it? Do you find yourself catching that? Well, I'm most definitely going to give some to the church. And then I'm going to get out of debt. And then I'm going to get ready for retirement. Well, what's that? I'm not sure what retirement, well, that's maybe a subject for another day. Maybe we'll let Doug talk about that or somebody else. I don't know much about retirement. But getting enough is a trap you get into. Say, well, I'm, I'm going to give 10% to the church. That's not the Old Testament pattern. The Old Testament pattern was not 10%. It was about 29 or 30%. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, I didn't want to hear that. Well, I'm going to give some to the church, and then I'm, I'm going I'm to get comfortable. But it feeds that almost insatiable act appetite in this amazing country of all the ways you can spend money. And Timothy says, command those who are rich to be in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. You know the the stuff we have and the assets that we own are at most temporarily given to us. And I can tell you from having done years of probate work, they're passing on. (laughs) You're not taking them with you like a U-Haul behind a hearse. And so you're going to have to figure a way that takes what you have, time, money, possessions, relationships, and makes investments in a way that counts for eternity. We've got to keep moving. Um, So James, excuse me, Timothy goes on to say, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, 
and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up for themselves treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life indeed. There it is. There it is. You want to light up yourself in a way that gives you the most satisfaction on this planet and in heaven? Do the things that this text says are life indeed. Be generous. Be willing to share. Be hospitable. I'm driving this morning here. I'm parked right there at Cadoba, and um, I see a lady struggling in a wheelchair. And you know, oh, she'll make it. <laughs> uh, no. I pulled over, jumped out of my car, helped push her up the hill. She'd gotten off a bus on her wheelchair, got her up to a level spot, and then ended up talking to Monique and sharing with her things that have to do with the provisions of God. And she says, you know, I just had a blessing from God this morning. I don't have any money, but I got a job. I'm an artist. I'm going to be able to do this thing and make $500. And I thought, what a blessing to take a, a silly 10 minutes out of my schedule and look around for somebody whose need I see, whose need I can meet. And, and I don't say that to puff myself up. I say that to say to you, keep your eyes open because there's all kinds of opportunities. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So James says... We want to do the thing which is life indeed. I've had two weeks now, by way of application, to answer the question, who is rich? I thought a lot about it, and here's the answer. I don't know. Actually, that's not true. The answer is, everybody is rich in the ways in which God has given him things, with the exception of people that are hungry in this country. I don't understand hungry in this country, but I'm glad we've got the family promise going on with Dave and Debbie and others so you can participate in that. But basically, the truth is, we are all wealthy. We have opportunities to do things in a way that impacts others. And the question isn't, what is our designation as one who is wealthy, as one who is rich? This text says the key issue is, what do we do? That's the measure of wealth. Not who we are, not what our net worth is, but what we do with what we have. I told you last week that 23 years ago, I built an office building in Lake Oswego with three other partners. We were in it until we all turned 65, and then nobody wanted to sell but one partner, and so we sold it. And the folks that bought it didn't run it well and kind of ran it down. After three years, it came back to me, and we'd sold it for kind of a goofy price, more than I thought it was worth. So they came back to me three years later. I'd remained in the building and said, do you want to buy it back? And I had to apply these same kind of measures I'm talking to you about. And they wanted a price that was even more goofy than what we sold it to them three years ago. Go figure that. But after a financial analysis and a resource analysis that had to do with the same kind of things I'm talking to you about, what is wisdom here? How does it apply to the time God's given me, the money, the possessions? I purchased the building back two and a half years ago. Now, was that a good decision? I think so. I mean, it's going fine two and a half years later. Uh, but... I had another approach recently, 
about another investment, and I said, no thank you. So what you have to decide with the resources that you have is how do they measure up against what I want to do in life that counts for eternity? How much will it impact the time that I have, the money, the possessions, the people? And that's how you make your decisions. And praying about wisdom in the whole thing. James has said that we are to be ones who are rich in good works, who are generous, who are willing to share, excuse me, Timothy, who are willing to share. And so within your plot plan as a family or as an individual, think through what are the opportunities that you have with the means that God has given you. I believe strongly in the principle of the attitude of gratitude, that we are to be a people impacted with grateful hearts for the things that God has given us. We are blessed. We have a whole range of opportunities for service and care. And I suggested to you last week that the Good Samaritan was our model. That when Jesus was asked about the application of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and loving your neighbors yourself, he said, who is my neighbor? And he answered it with the Good Samaritan. Now, for many of us in the church, we're kind of like Bud Wilkinson, the coach of the University of Oklahoma, viewed the church. He said, to me, the church is like a football game. It's 22 people on the field sorely in need of rest and 80,000 people in the stands sorely in need of exercise. <laughs> and that's true. But I don't want to make too simplistic the observation of the Samaritan as to needs we see that needs we can meet because we are buried with people asking us for things. And you have to, in the needs you see, go through a refining kind of a review process and say, is this legitimate? Is it something I can help with? Is there a track record of integrity in terms of this group or individual? Or at times, don't worry about the fact that it's deductible or that you get tax credit for it. Just think in terms of, is that a need you meet I need you to see that I need you to meet. This church has a whole, you know, I'm not paid for this, so I can promote this. This church has a whole range of opportunities. The Benevolence Fund today, the Family Promise activities that are involved. You don't have to go farther than outside this door to look at ways in which you can find legitimate, good ways to support the church, the staff, and the programs in the church. And that is the needs we see and the needs we can meet. So Winston Churchill reviewed for us what is a motive that sneaks into our thinking, where there is a will, I want to be part of it, but the issue is not getting a lottery ticket and hitting it. The issue is with what God provides for you by way of means. Two ways to get wealthy, and I'll finish with this. Two ways to get wealthy in this country. One is with money you don't earn. That usually comes with inheritance. And I will say to you, um, be careful with that. 
because it gives you a false impression of what money is worth and what it can do. And we have had whole ranges of people and we structure legal documents for parents that attempt to prevent their children from going goofy <laughs> with what they inherit. The second way we get wealthy is by working for it. If you're an employer today, here's unsolicited advice for you, okay? And it's probably worth what you've paid for it. Do what I try to do, which is pay people not the least you can pay them, but something closer to the most that you can pay them. That's honorable to God. You don't need just accrue yourself in a net worth on the backs of your people. Take care of them. That's honorable in terms of the New Testament. And then finally, with the things that you work for, and it's likely that you're going to have toward the course of your life, never stop thinking in terms of eternity. We're here today, and James says, life is like a vapor. Poof, and we're gone. So, for tomorrow and for eternity, use those things in a way that counts in being rich toward God. I'm trying to do it. We'll be on the journey together. Let's pray. Father, it's your word that um, pierces us to the thoughts and intents of our heart and provides for us instruction in how to live, how to be honorable, how to treat others as you would treat them, how to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to use his life as a model and encouragement for us. And for that, Lord, we commit to you our lives together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we're doing communion, folks. And let me talk to you about traditions. This is me, who is maybe one of the least traditional people that you'll meet. There were two traditions in the New Testament church. I'll be quick. Can you think of what they were? The first you're probably thinking of, it was forsake not the assembling together, right? The second one you may not be as aware of, but every week they took the Lord's table. Every week, not every month, every week. And that was a tradition. But they got it all messed up <laughs> because they would drink the wine till they got drunk. They'd eat the bread and other people would go hungry, all kinds of things. And so... Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, examine yourself and as you partake of the wine and the bread and remember Jesus, do it in a way that's honorable, that has decorum. If the servers could come forward. the bread and the cup until I come back up. You won't be struck by lightning if you take it early, but just hold on. Okay, go ahead. In the crushing 
In the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus. 
scriptures say in James chapter 4 and verse 17, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. First Corinthians says, examine yourself before you eat and drink of the bread and drink of the cup. So go through in your own mind, your own walk, and your own place with God. And then with the cup and with the bread, as with the early church, it's written, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's eat and drink together. Father God, thank you that we can be a people that come and gather and praise your name, God, for all you've done. You've given us so much, God. Help us to be a people that have grateful and thankful hearts, that live in a way that we see others and take the opportunities to love well. We just thank you for this morning and thank you for this time, Lord, and all God's people say, amen. Well, this next song we're doing is actually a special song. Um, it's, it's meant to bring hope. Um, we have a lot of families right now in our church that are going through cancer. And a lot of families in our church right now that have lost a lot of loved ones and, um, or just are really struggling. <laughs> and so um, I just happened to have a little inside um, birdie that maybe whispered to me that this might be one of the champion songs of our ladies that are struggling with cancer. And... Um, this has been their song that's brought them hope. And I'm trying not to look at Chris Wilson right now. <laughs> She's going to make me cry. Um, and so we've been blessed to, um, to learn it, and we're going to share it with you. And we just hope that this brings hope to all of you that are going through a hard time. A phrase that this song talks about, it's called Red Sea Road. Red sea Road. And I had never heard that phrase before, that, um, that idea of when we get to that Red Sea moment, and there's no way through, and there's just no possible way we can do anything at all. But God comes through, and he parts the sea, and he makes a way, and only the way that he can. And I think there's a lot of us that need that this morning, and I just want to bring that hope. We want to bring that hope to you this morning that God is a God of promises. He's ever, he's ever faithful, and he always keeps his promises, and he parts the sea when nothing else can. So we're going to sing this together.
Never walk alone down a Red Sea road. Amen. Well, as you go on your way today, please pray with one another, love one another, and we'll see you next week.